This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. The world was shocked yet again by another case of police brutality, by the images of the police officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck for over eight minutes leading to his death. Peaceful protests followed, violent clashes, threats of military violence by leadership, and all this during an ongoing pandemic. After reading his piece called A Tale of Two Videos, Why the Images of George Floyd Dying Broke the Nation, I asked my frequent guest, Eric Deggins, to join me. Eric is a media analyst at NPR and NBC, and he's the author of the book Race Bader, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. Eric, thank you so much for joining me on such short notice and during such difficult times. Thank you for having me. So you write that there are actually two videos that you see in a way leading up to this chaos. Can you tell me about that? Sure. So the first video, of course, is the video that everyone's talking about now um, that shows George Floyd beneath um, several police officers holding down, holding him down, particularly one with his knee on his neck and him sort of telling them he can't breathe and begging for help and then eventually uh, passing out. and. Um, you know, as far as we know, he died there. Um, the other video is the video of uh, Christian Cooper, an African-American birder who was walking in the Ramble, a section of Central Park in New York City. And he had asked uh, a white woman to leash her dog according, in accordance with the rules of the area, um, because birders are always worried about dogs um, disturbing the birds and also um, disturbing the people who are there trying to see them. And she um, very pointedly threatened uh, to call the police on him. And then, um, you know, was he filmed her and she was um, saying into the phone, an African-American man is threatening me, threatening my dog, even though he wasn't doing either one of those things. And she was very pointedly bringing up his race to the police officers or to the 911 uh, operator, uh, apparently thinking that that would uh, bring a more urgent response. And so my point at the beginning of the piece was to talk about how these are, this is the full continuum of white supremacy as expressed through the policing of black bodies. On the one hand, you have what the cops do when they show up to a situation where they've been told that a person of color has broken a law or has transgressed in some way. And then in the other video, you have a white person who very clearly understands the power that they have to color the police's um, reaction and, and, and intends to threaten to call down that reaction on a person of color uh, who she believes has um, you know, disrespected her in some way or is in conflict with her in some way. And, um, and, and what's interesting to me about the uh, the Amy Cooper slash Christian Cooper video, Amy Cooper's name, the woman, is that it seemed to me like it was instinctive for her that that she just immediately thought, well, I can call the cops and I can tell them this black guy is menacing me and they will come and they will take my side. Uh, she knew what to say uh, to the 911 uh, operator so that when the police came, 
um, the black man standing there would automatically be at a disadvantage regardless of the facts of the situation. And, and to have someone instinctively understand how white supremacy works when it comes to policing is all you need to know to tell you how much of a problem this is. <laughs> There's a whole language built into this. If some random white woman in Central Park knows that she can use the code of black man is threatening me to bring down police officers in a way that they will take her side the minute they get there, that tells us how pervasive this is and how much of a problem this is. And, and, and the piece goes on to talk about how um, we, as black people, have been forced to constantly document um, death. Uh, to constantly document these moments to prove to people who are not uh, black that it happens and, and that it's happening for a reason that has nothing to do with what the person is doing and everything to do with how the system reacts to uh, the thought that a black person may be transgressing. And there's so many instances, there's so many videos, it repeats itself. It's even the same language. I can't breathe. I can't, I mean, it just keeps sure. going and going without change. And, and, and you were talking about this, that there's the very existence of systemic racism and prejudice. People are so tone deaf to this. And there's, there's no way of talking about that there's a flaw inside police work. There's a natural thing going on here where people want to believe that they live in a system that mostly works, particularly when it comes to criminal justice, particularly when it comes to policing. They want to believe that it works. And so when something like this happens, they immediately want to find a way to explain it. And um, the, the, the other thing that happens here is that when something like this happens and people criticize the police, the police officers and the people involved in the criminal justice system take it very personally. But what a lot of people are saying and what I'm saying is that there is a system in place that is a problem. And sure, there are, there are I, I think there are a lot of cops who have very questionable views about race and who commits crimes and how to respond. One, one of the things that you find, you know, because I wound up listing, I wound up listing probably about uh, eight or nine uh, people who had either been hurt or killed by police officers in suspicious circumstances. There's this heartbreaking video of a guy whose uh, who's name I can't recall, but I name him in my piece, uh, where he uh, drove into a uh, he drove into a gas station, and he gets out, and a state trooper gets out. I think it was a state trooper. A police officer gets out, and sort of and and sort of says to him, um, you know, show me your license. So the guy immediately turns around to, to go inside his truck to get his license. But he does it very quickly. And the police officer freaks out and shoots him. And the guy is like, why did you do that? Like, you told me <laughs> to get my license. I was doing what you asked. Now, the guy is laying there. Fortunately, he survived. Uh, but the, the guy's laying there. He basically, what he says is that, the, the officer says he pulled him. He pulled him over because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt when he was driving. The guy says, "I took my seatbelt off as I was right before I pulled into the gas station because I was going to gas up my car." Right. So, so he stopped him with his gun drawn because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Okay, even that is crazy. 
but um, but to have this situation where the guy uh, claims to have been wearing a seatbelt and then took it off right before he pulled into there, and and the guy comes out to stop him and his gun's already out. I mean, there's all there's so many things wrong with that situation. But what it shows, and and when you watch the video of Tamir Rice, the 12 year old who was killed um, playing with a toy gun in a park, you watch the video of John Crawford. Um, a, a black man who was carrying a toy gun in a Walmart and got killed because someone called 911 and said he had a real gun and was threatening people. Um, you know, what, what, what these situations have in common is that police officers roll up to a situation, they shout out a command, someone is startled and reacts, and then they shoot him. And, and, and so in that moment, when you're a police officer and you're deciding whether or not to use deadly force. You're already poised to use it. And then you decide whether or not you're gonna use deadly force. What's going through your mind? Why are you already ready to use deadly force against someone who um, you know, may just be playing in a park or may just be buying a toy in a convenience store or may just be stopping to get gas? And, and, and the fact that there's not a thought process in between I'm rolling up on the situation. I better be strapped and ready as opposed to I'm coming up on someone who doesn't know what I'm going to ask of them. Uh, and, 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 and the other thing we see in some of these situations is that cops will shout things. It startles people and they try to comply, but they don't really know what they're being asked to do. Uh, so, and, and, and I think that, that, that might've been what happened to Philando Castile, the man who was shot and killed in this car when he was trying to, uh, retrieve his license and show the police officer that he was licensed to carry a weapon that he, that he was actually carrying. Right. So it's ingrained is what you're saying. This response, it just is. There seems to be a moment or a few moments where you can decide to wait and see what the situation is or you can decide to act. Um, and, and the question is, are, are, are black people getting less of, of, of uh, the benefit of the doubt when they come up on these, when police come up on these situations where they have to confront someone or they feel like they have to confront someone? I mean, even, you know, deciding whether you have to confront somebody. Um, you know, I, I, as I say in the piece, I mean, I just find it astounding that there's a, there, there was a manhunt uh, for uh, a college student who's accused of killing two people um, and, and doing other things. And they took him into custody without incident. The guy's alive. But somebody who was accused of passing a fake $20 bill gets killed. You know, there, there's, there's a sense that cops are afraid for their lives when they're facing certain people. And they're not afraid for their lives when they're facing other kind of people. And it seems like 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 the difference between that doesn't have a lot to do with what the person's accused of doing. It's more who the person is. And 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 so that that's that's the thing that's that's so terrible about this. And 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 we all have been living under these assumptions for so long uh that trying to get people to break it down and trying to challenge that is very difficult because people want to believe that the system that's a rate that's aligned to sort of stop crime and make a community safe. They want to believe that it mostly works. They don't want to believe that it's incredibly dysfunctional and that for some people in society, 
It may not work. You talk a lot about language in, in your book. Trump has definitely been inflammatory in terms of his, you know, stoking his base, verbal attacks on journalists. And, and he said something in, in a tweet. He says, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Sure. So uh, that was a tweet sort of early. I don't know if you'd think, say it was early. I, I think it, I think tweeted it on Friday, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um but but that was a tweet that he put out uh, where um, he was trying to to tell people that if you're looting and, and doing violent things, then you know violence is going to come to you. And um, and he threw out this phrase. Um, you know, my uh, other people that I've talked to challenge me and say that they think that he knew what he was saying, but I don't think he knew what he was saying. I think I think he was quoting a phrase that people in his circle use all the time uh, to refer to these incidents. And uh, I'm not sure he realized the, uh, where that phrase came from. But that phrase came from, uh, was used by a notorious uh, police chief in Miami, who was police chief in the late 1960s when the Republican National Convention came to Miami and there were riots um, in, in, in uh, roiling the city. And, uh, and he said it, uh, according to research that I've seen, he said it uh, at least a couple of times. Um, and, and he was renowned for um, uh, getting uh, teams of police officers to go through black neighborhoods to rouse people and to crack down in the, uh, on civil rights protests. Um, and, uh, you know, was sort of the epitome of the uh, white Southern sheriff who was going to maintain the status quo and crack down on civil rights protesters using violence, dogs, um, uh, show them who's boss, right? And and now that ethic and that and that I and that that sentiment seems to be very much where Donald Trump's head is right now. And um, you know, it's 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 funny, you know, when he when he coined that phrase, "Make America Great Again," um, a, a lot of us who study history and civil rights. Uh, said, you know, make America great again for who? <laughs> you know, at, at what period are you talking about making taking America back to, and when was America great, and who was it great for? And, and of course, you know, we we all many of us assume he was talking about taking America back to a, a time when, um, you know, uh, white people controlled everything without question. Um, and uh, and he seems to be backing that up now with the, the things he's saying uh, in, in the wake of these protests, um, accusing governors of being weak uh, for not cracking down harder, threatening to send in the military to states that don't get control of the protests, um, not really uh, seeming to make any moves towards talking to people and trying to understand where they're coming from and trying to understand uh, why this violence is happening and, and blaming it on uh, agitators um, from the far left. You know, this whole idea of, uh, you know, agitators stirring things up and they're the problem. You know, uh, we've seen this movie before. <laughs> you know, this is how the government uh, reacted in the 1960s when the civil rights protests started. And we had riots in Los Angeles, we had riots in Boston, we had riots in Chicago, we had riots in Miami. Um, you know, you would think that we would have learned something from that time, but 
Um, but we are stuck with a, uh, a head of government um, who is determined to repeat that um, uh, that playbook. And, and, and so we're all sort of stuck, um, you know, trying to live in that reality. Right. Being conciliatory seems to, I don't know, go against his whole being and masculinity right. or, or, or whatever. That's, right. He views that, as, that, we, he, he views that as weakness. He, he views that as weakness. And, and unfortunately, you know, and, and what we, so, so what we know is that these dynamics, uh, the, the other thing too, and I talked about this in the piece that you talked about, um, is that uh, I, I think one of the things we don't talk about enough is that one of the major bones of contention that separate uh, conservative ideologies from liberal ideologies is this notion that there's this systemic racism and prejudice inside America that um, greatly affects um, and diminishes the ability of people of color to succeed in America. I think that's a, um, that's a question that divides the two political poles uh, very seriously. There are conservatives um, many conservatives who will say that what happened to George Floyd was terrible and that the, the police officer, there should be an investigation to find out who was responsible and punish the people who were. But uh, in the same breath, they say most cops are good people and we shouldn't tarnish the whole police department for what a few bad apples do. That, that phrase is often used. And um, we have so many instances where this happens. We have so many instances where this happens under similar conditions. Um, there are people on the other side of this argument saying, it's not just a few bad apples, it's a system. And so it doesn't, it matters less that there are good people inside that system because that system is, is, is forcing them uh, to, to, um, to contribute uh, to um, a mechanism that ultimately has this terrible result. And so it's not about, I mean, you know, people who talk about civil rights and race in America, we often have this conversation with people who are doubtful about what we're talking about. It, it is less about what individual people do. And it is more about looking at this overall system that has a certain result and breaking down the elements in that system that produced that result. My, my whole book in 2012, Race Bader, was about exposing the mechanisms and media that feed into these ideas that help demonize people of color, help otherize people of color, and make it easier for things like what happened to George Floyd to, to happen to them. And, and to argue that those elements and media that do that uh, are a major part of why we are still struggling to treat people equally, uh, you know, 50 years after uh, the, the protests and the unrest that, uh, you know, finally produced the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act and, you know, uh, action to desegregate housing and action, action to decriminalize interracial uh, marriages. So, um, you know, we're, we're in a moment now where that conflict and disagreement is coming to a head. We have video that is showing again and again and again that police officers are making, are over-policing. They, they are responding with um, a lethal force in situations where they should have taken a beat or two to realize what was going on before they responded. And instead of looking at the overall system, we're punishing these individual guys. 
And I think some police officers are understanding now that that's bad for them too. <laughs> that, that, that if it's almost like being sent into um, a dangerous situation with a, with a, uh, a vest, a bulletproof vest that doesn't work. You know, if, if you, if you're sent into a situation where your training leads you, um, well, not so much your training, but if you're sent into a situation where the environment that you're policing in pushes you uh, to act in a way where you have a split second to make a decision and that split second decision can end someone's life and you're in an environment where you're subtly pushed towards making a decision where you're going to end the life of a person of color quicker than you're going to end the life of a white person. You know, you yourself have been placed in an unfair situation, right? And I, and I think what also happens is that, you know, you know, I, I, you know, I, I see this video of George Floyd and, and we've seen it. Some people have seen it many times. Um, there seems to be, three police officers holding him down. The one that we can see who has his neck, his knee on his neck, and there's two other guys that seem to be hidden by uh, a, a police uh, car. And then there's an officer standing up, keeping people back, right? And, and I often wonder what that officer who was keeping people back was thinking. If he was thinking that that knee on the neck was, an, was something that that guy shouldn't be doing, did, did he feel free to turn around, turn his back on all these people who were crowding in, and say to the guy, hey man, take your, take your knee off that guy's head. You know, did he feel free to make that correction in that moment? You know what I mean? We can't, we can't even say for sure that there's an environment where if there's a good cop out there who sees something bad going on, that he or she can step up and stop it. Right. Right. That's it. Yeah. That's and, it. And, and we've seen journalism, you know, Wesley Lowry um, is a friend. He, he writes for the Washington Post and um, you know, he's been covering this for a long time. He was one of the two uh, journalists who was arrested in Ferguson by the police. And, um, and one of the things he's looked at is that when police officers, uh, you know, uh, have a troubled track record when it comes to use of force, um, they may be fired by one municipality, but they end up getting hired by another. It, 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 is, it is hard to weed out um, bad cops, in part because there is a system where cops are encouraged to not inform on each other um, and to not, you know, expose people um, who um, may use force too much or, or may have other flaws in their policing. And so that's part of the problem too. And, you know, it, I think protesters are trying to make the point that, um, you know, it's better for police officers for folks to break down this systemic problem because it doesn't put them in untenable situations where a split second choice uh, not only, you know, kills someone, but destroys their life. And, 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 and that's the part of it that I think is not being understood by these law and order types like the president. They don't understand that they're putting police officers in situations where they could be severely harmed. Um, and if there was, you know, a, an effort to break down some of this stuff, um, you know, then maybe they wouldn't be in these situations. I know it's it's a big question, but is there a way to start both on a leadership level to really look at this system, which has been in place? Just hearing you talk, how many decades this has right. been in place and, and just keeps going and going, as well as right. on sort of my level, what can I do? I mean, obviously you have to have uh, people in power who believe that this is a problem. 
and are willing to to um, take some, in in some cases, unpopular actions to try and deal with it. And so, um, you know, that's been part of our problem is that, you know, there's been some journalism that has suggested that uh, when Jeff Sessions was first appointed as attorney general, one of the first things he did was stop the Justice Department from looking into uh, and 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 uh, and developing strategies for disciplining uh, police departments uh, that had a bad track record in po- in policing communities of color. So it just seems to me like one thing that's got to happen is that whoever's in the White House has got to take the issue more seriously and and has to marshal um, the federal resources in order to really focus on. It. I mean, you know, it's one of these things. Um, that we talk, that we realize a, a lot now, you know, um, there, <laughs> how do I say, how do I say this? Um, you know, a lot of people have been talking about our problems with mass shootings and the frustration with the idea that a lot of people in America seem to have accepted that they just happen and that there's nothing that America can do. Um, but but the fact of the matter is there's this sense that, that America's never really tried to do um, enough to try and stop mass shootings. Um, that uh, we, uh, our, our, our um, uh, federal agencies have shied away from collecting information about mass shootings and about how they happen and why people do them and, and how to stop them. Um, there's been re- resistance to gun control legislation to even trying it, to even experimenting with laws to see what might reduce um, this, if at all possible. Um, this uh, uh, this sense that the, the government hasn't really seriously tried to get a handle on mass shootings in a way that we can even say whether or not it's true that Amer- that the government can't do anything about it. We don't know, right? And And, and, and I feel the same way about what we're talking about here. Um, you know, uh, it, 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 Wesley has talked about this in print. It's, it's hard to get statistics from the federal government about um, police shootings and police shootings coded by race and police shootings coded by race that will give you a sense of the situation of, of, of each incident. It, it is hard to get that information. It's hard to compile it. And it's hard to get a sense about why things happen uh, the larger patterns of why things happen and the way they, uh, and, and, and why they don't. And, and, you know, the federal government could make that much easier. Um, the FBI could make that much easier. Local police departments across the country could make that much easier. And then we might have a sense of what's actually happening and we wouldn't be relying so much on anecdotal evidence. But unless we take this seriously and, and all of our institutions from you know, local city um, to to county government, to state government, to federal government, if they don't all work together to try and figure out what's going on here and get a handle on it, then we're stuck with lurching from emergency to emergency to emergency. And then eventually, you know, people get fed up and, and they explode. And then we're stuck dealing with that, which is a whole other thing. And, and, and we've lost sight of, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What created this initial thing in the herbs place? Um, you know, um, one of the most revealing things that happened in the wake 
of uh, Michael Brown's death in Ferguson was that the Department of Justice came in and did a, a, a thorough study of the police department there and documented how they over-policed uh, the black community in that area and how it was a profit, it was, it, it was a profit-making um, uh, strategy. You know, it, it, uh, they, made, they made a lot of money out of, uh, you know, stopping, constantly stopping people of color and finding and um, we need those kind of studies to happen on every police department when something this egregious happens to get a sense of what, how does the system work and why is it working that way? And, you know, we'll never know that. And all the while, these mass shootings you were talking about is repeating its white guys with manifestos of white power hate. I mean, again and again and again. I, I can't help but feel that if it was um, if it was a phenomenon that was mostly non-white people, the federal government would have jumped on it a lot quicker, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so you, you always wonder that, but um, you know, ultimately, sort of sticking your head in the sand and being afraid to study something, being afraid afraid to learn more about something, just it never works. It never works. That, that thing that you're afraid of is going to keep happening. And, and at some point, you know, uh, uh, you know, COVID, um, the, the coronavirus has, has proven this to us, right? You know, uh, you, you can spend years saying, well, I don't want to spend money on preparing for a pandemic. You know, is that really going to happen? You know, just makes, seems to make so much more sense to, you know, hand tax breaks to, um, millionaires and billionaires. Guys, you know, yeah. Why do we need to spend money on it? You know, and in that moment, it might seem like it makes sense because, you know, there's no pandemic. But then a pandemic hits and you're not prepared and you've defunded all these organizations that were supposed to uh, help you prepare. And then you realize, oh my God, what? You know, so I, I, would, I would hope. I mean, part, I, think, I think one of our biggest problems is that we're just not learning from history. You know, right now, this moment feels like, like, like a moment that we've been in 50 years ago. You know, people, people get safe, they get happy, and they start to forget. And, and they take off the guardrails. And they don't understand that those guardrails were there for a reason. So then you take off the guardrails, and, and, and you're ignoring everything, and then an accident happens, you know. And, and you got to cope with the fact that accident wouldn't have happened if you hadn't taken the girls off. I want to ask you as a media analyst, um, what's your perspective on the whole thing Trump did yesterday, walking out of the White House, tear gassing the peaceful protesters and, and taking that photo op with the Bible? What's your read on that? I mean, uh, it's hard to know sometimes why he does what he does. But um, I, I've, I've often said... You know, I, I talk in my book about this idea of the tyranny of the broad niche. Mm -hmm. I talk about this idea that um, because media is so fragmented, a lot of media outlets have decided to focus on a profitable niche of the audience. And they super serve them. They give them everything that they might want in a channel uh, in, in hopes that they will bring those people in and they won't want to go anywhere else. Now, if you don't particularly care for whatever it is that they're serving up, um, you know, as far as that channel is concerned, you're out of luck. You got to go somewhere else. Is that like Fox News type of? Is that it's like Fox News yeah. catering to um, the worldview of uh, you know mostly white 
mostly middle aged, mostly male uh, people. Uh, but it's also like Lifetime catering to female viewers or um, the Oprah Winfrey Network catering to um, black female viewers. I mean, every cable channel has a target audience and they super serve that target audience. And, um, uh, and, and they don't spend as much time worrying about people who don't fit that target. Um, but unfortunately, we have a president who's very much a creature of media who seems to govern that way. He governs by appealing to his target audience, and, it, and he doesn't seem to care that much about people who are not a part of his target audience. And so that display, um, you know, I mean, my hunch, and what do I know? I mean, I don't know the guy. I've just been, you know, living under his administration for three years. But um, it seems to me that that was all about his idea of showing strength, that that was all about um, his idea of, um, you know, there's been all this talk in, in cable TV news about him hiding in a bunker and he wanted to show that he was not doing that. Um, he had railed at um, uh, governors across the nation for not being strong and not taking control. And so part of that was him showing that he's in control in the way that he understands it. Um, and, 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 and the speech that he gave before he walked over was an attempt to sort of justify all of that, uh, to say, you know, I'm standing up for the protesters, but, you know, I'm taking on uh, the people who are committing violence. Um, but, you know, as always with Donald Trump, there's what he says and there's what he does. So he says this just after police had essentially uh, forced a group of peaceful protesters <laughs> to clear out <laughs> with tear gas and rubber bullets so that he could take a walk from the Rose Garden to a church that it turns out the bishop of the... Didn't uh, want him there. The, yeah, the bishop of the church didn't even want him there. So, you know, um, I mean, and, 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 and again, you know, to point out not only that we've already learned from history that this doesn't work, right? We, you know, uh, government officials tried this tactic in the 60s and it didn't work. Right, they eventually had to capitulate. Eventually, we left Vietnam. Eventually, we passed civil rights legislation. You know, eventually, um, all these things they were resisting fell. But because uh, of the strong arm tactics of the people who were in power, it took longer and more people got hurt. And 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 why can't we learn from that uh, from that example? And and it also reminds me of you know authoritarian regimes that we see in other countries. You know, it it, it, it it felt like I was, you know, watching something from the Philippines or Brazil or, you know, what the heck? This, it, it, this, this is not the way that American leaders have conducted themselves in recent years. Because I think, you know, those previous American leaders were aware of history and, and aware of how things happen in other places in the world. Yeah, and aware of economic disparities and how people are feeling and what's going on. I mean, it just seems like nothing is taken in cons into consideration. Well, I mean, again, if you live in a world where there are winners and losers and the people who are losers are losers because they are losers and it's their fault, then, you know, this idea that you can change the system so that more of them succeed is not something that you believe in. And so uh, I, I think that's the, the, the con that's one of the conflicts that we're in the middle of.
And, 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 like, and like I said, you know, that idea of winners and losers, again, it, it connects back to this idea of systemic racism and prejudice or not. You know, do we live in a country where there's an even playing field and you succeed or fail mostly based on your merit? Or do we live in a world, uh, do we live in a country where there's a bunch of things inside the system that hold you back um, based on what you look like, based on where you come from, based on how much money you have? And, uh, uh, and, and we have to face that, that, that it's not an even playing field. And, and, you know, some of this is ideology. Some of this is, you know, selfish motive. Uh, but I think some of this is very, a very human response. If you are wealthy in this country, you do not want to believe that you're wealthy because you got lucky and because the system supports people who are wealthy so that they can stay wealthy. You don't want to believe that, mm. right? You want to believe that you made it on your own worth. Even, even Donald Trump, you know, who's the, who's, who's the son uh, of a millionaire whose dad, according to the New York Times, gave him almost $500 million, right? Even he wants to believe that he worked to get what he has, right? Um, so, and, and, I, and I think, you know, beyond that speaking to his own personal dysfunctions, I also think that that's a very human response that people who are wealthy do not want to believe that they are wealthy on the backs of the poor and the middle class, even though many times they are. And, and, and you know, if you're middle class or you're um, the working poor, you also want to believe that you can, that, that it will be easier for you to get out of the situations that you're in than maybe it is. And, and again, as I, as, I said in the, uh, as I said in the piece that you cited, um, you know, when I wrote the book, there was studies showing that something like 46% of white Americans believed that prejudice against white people was just as much of a problem as prejudice against people of color. And then NPR got together with two other institutions and did a study in 2017 that found that, you know, 55% of the people that they surveyed um, believe that. And, and 63% of those people they surveyed um, believe that police were just as likely to use excessive force against white people as they were against people of color. So, so part of what you're pushing back against is this, um, is that there's, there's a lot of people out there that want to believe that the system works equally for everyone. And, and when you try to show them evidence that it doesn't, they'll say, well, the media exaggerates that stuff. Or, I mean, I think that's why these videos are so powerful. You know, they weren't created by a news organization. Um, they weren't uh, part of some study or some investigation. You know, somebody, something happened to somebody, they filmed it, and then it went viral. And so you go and watch the video, and you can decide for yourself what you think is happening. And, and, and um, it was, what was interesting to me, like, like in my book, I did a whole timeline of how the Trayvon Martin case, where Trayvon Martin uh, was a, uh, a, a, a young man who... Uh, um, was walking to his father's girlfriend's house in Sanford, Florida, and was confronted by George Zimmerman, uh, who was sort of a volunteer um, a security guy in, in that area. And uh, they got in a fight, and Zimmerman shot and killed him. So um, it, it took a while for that story to even reach the media mainstream, much longer than it would have taken these days. And um, and then it and then it uh, and it took and, and once that story sort of hit the mainstream media, it took a while for conservative news outlets to figure out how they felt about it. 
and there was there were several days where you know Fox News wasn't quite sure what it wanted to say about what happened there, and um, and 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 now we've reached a point where uh, conservative news outlets have figured out that it's hard to argue with the video, right? So you can't necessarily say, um, you know, the, the, the video's confusing or the video's misleading. It seems like the video shows what happened. So then you say, well, you know, this individual thing may have been terrible, but it's not evidence of something. That's larger. the bad apple thing that you that's, that's the That's the bad apple. And, and, and we've, so it's been interesting to see that, you know, like when, when, when the Trayvon Martin situation happened and became national news, it, it swept the globe in the same way that George Floyd's uh, death swept the globe. It took longer. And it took these ideological media outlets longer to figure out, especially conservative media outlets, to figure out how to even talk about it. Because they had to figure out a way to talk about it in a way that was consistent with their ideology. And they were presented with the situation that seemed at odds with the things that they were saying about society. And, and and so now we've reached a point where everybody knows their roles, and uh, which is also very strange. Yeah, it, it, well, I mean, but if things keep happening, but if things keep happening, then people figure out how to react to it, right? You know, but the same thing with mass shootings. You know, when you know once society experiences that trauma enough, then society figures out a way to react to it every time it happens. Yeah, but that's so depressing that it becomes, a, so, you know, something we get used to and get used to reacting to. Well, yeah, what's depressing is that the reaction isn't, let's stop this. <laughs> let's, just, let's, let's do whatever we can to stop this, you know. You know, I mean, and, 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 someone, who is, um, and someone who is cynical about how American systems work will look at it and say, when the coronavirus threatened American commerce, the world came to a halt and all the energies of the federal government was devoted to figuring out how to stop this. And then we reached a point where it seemed like some people in government, some people in the White House decided, well, we can't really stop this. So we're just gonna restart everything and, and hope for the best, right? Uh, but, but, it, but it was about you know, threatening American commerce as opposed to threatening American lives. Finally, you write about what, you know, what I can do as a white person, what, what very small level, how, how can I, what can I do? How can I think? How can I change? Right, right. Well, again, and, and this is from the perspective of somebody who criticizes media. This is not from the perspective of somebody who's mostly rooted in politics. So somebody who's mostly rooted in politics might have other recommendations. But uh, what, what, one of the things we know is that people tend to believe information that's passed along by friends more than they believe information that comes from official news sources or institutions. So one thing that's very important, even though people don't, I think, I think people individually don't understand the power that they have to influence their social circle. But one of the things that, that I think is important is that just for people inside whatever social circle they're in to um, talk about when you see something happening that's rooted in prejudice or stereotyping. And it's not necessarily about just confronting somebody. Hey, you did something. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But, but you know your friends um, better than any you know, outside person. So what's the most effective way to approach someone who's posting a lot of racist things on their Facebook page? Or, or who's resisting the idea of systemic racism and prejudice? What's the best way to, to uh, approach that person 
and suggest, hey, maybe there's another way to view this. And the fact that someone inside their social circle is saying this to them is going to have a power anyway. Um, I'm convinced, number one, the reason why smoking was able to be curbed so much in America uh, at a time when a lot of people thought it, it could never happen is that a bunch of people just decide to confront people in their own spaces. I don't want you smoking in my house. I don't want you smoking in my car. I have to work in this space. I don't want to have to deal with cigarette smoke. Like enough of those conversations happen that we reached a point where, um, you know, people don't smoke in public public spaces, especially indoors very much. And, and there's a lot of people who don't smoke at all. Um, so now we have to reach the point where that's happening on a human level when we talk about systemic racism and prejudice and figure out, you know, one of the things I was saying to a friend when I was discussing this idea with them on, on social media was that the, the great advantage and achievement of Fox News is that it has always presented its ideological um, propaganda as a choice to the viewer. We report, you decide. Um, that's nonsense. Often they, do, often they do decide, and they very much tell you what to think about things. But they always, but they always present it. They always present it as a choice. They, they always present it as, we're not telling you what to think. We're just showing you the facts, and we'll let you figure out what to think. Right? Um, and, and there's a power to that, because people feel like they're making a choice. And, 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 I, and I think a lot of times when there's friction between people who are uh, on the other side of the theological spectrum, it's because they're coming to people and they're saying, you must do this. You have to do this. You must understand that the person you're supporting is X, Y, and Z, or the policy you're supporting is X, Y, and Z. And people automatically react to that. Like, hey, you're, you're trying to tell me what to do. You're trying to tell me how to think. I'm not going to do that. You know, whereas... You know, Fox News is saying, hey, we're just showing you the facts. You figure out what to think. Now, we're only showing you certain facts, <laughs> and we're talking about them in a certain way, right? Um, we're, we're, we're stacking our panel discussions, so there's one liberal and there's four conservatives, including the host, who controls the discussion. But, hey, we're just, we're just presenting the facts. So, uh, so part of this is figuring out how to talk to people in a way that respects their intelligence and says, you know, here, here's what's going on. You decide. Again, that's what these videos do. Um, these videos just present a situation and say, well, what do you think's going on here? <laughs> you know, what, what does that look like? <laughs> you know, and, and, it, and it's hard, it's hard to fight that. So, um, so I, so I think part of it is figuring out ways to um, challenge people without directly challenging them. Figuring out ways to figure, figuring out ways to act, ask people to think differently about these subjects in a way that doesn't threaten their personal identity. You know, coming to people and saying, "I'm not calling you a bigot. I'm not saying that you're a terrible person, but I'm asking you to think differently about these issues because these issues have a very real impact on other people." They have a very real impact on you as well. We're just so tired. It's just gone to another level of, of, of bigotry that you just can't even, I don't even want to sit here and discuss blatant racism or homophobia. Sometimes I think a lot of people are just feeling there's nothing even to say here. That's what they count on.
that's what that's what uh, the ideologues are on the right. That's what they count on you you getting tired and, and and being quiet and 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 uh, it's because then it can be said, well, they're not saying anything because you know they're wrong and they can't they can't figure out how to spin it, you know. I will take that to not remain silent. I try not to, and I will keep talking to you, Eric. Thank you so much for taking your time and for and for really um, giving some perspective. I appreciate you having me on. I mean, it's an endless conversation. And uh, again, one of the things I talked about in my book is that, you know, there were people who voted for Obama because they thought that would end the discussions about race, that finally we would reach this point where things had progressed enough that we didn't have to talk about it. That will never happen. And, and, and I think people have to understand that this is a constant, eternal struggle and conversation. It's just, it just is. And, and once we accept that there's no magic place where we reach, where, where the conflict stops, then, then, then we can have the kind of conversations we need to have to figure out how to move forward as a united society. So we have to keep that tenacity up. And, but but also not be seduced by a false hope that you know there are, there are people who believe that the liberals would just shut up and just accept the world the way it is and everything would be fine and that's not going to happen right and there's other people who believe well you know if we just had a black president we just had a woman president we just reached this summit then we can stop talking about this that's not going to happen either so <laughs> we won't stop talking <laughs> thank you that that's a good way to end it let's just keep talking thank you so much thank you hello and welcome to guilty greenie i feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100 percent sustainable given the current world we live in how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. <laughs> We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. <laughs> Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. <laughs> Avoid <laughs> elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. So it's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. Yeah, tag- <laughs> You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green.